Our message this evening on this, uh, what is it, September 21st, 2016, is called Seven Barren Women and One Dog. Seven Barren Women and One Dog. Could we put John 15, 8 on the board? This is to my Father's glory. Somebody say glory in here tonight. That you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. God wants us to show that we are disciples. And what does that? What does that? What shows it? Bearing fruit. Come on this side of the room, youth group. Do you want to bear fruit? Man, man, man. It will not bring glory to the Father and will not show you to be a disciple, to be miserable, to make others miserable, to walk in resentment to flirt with sin your entire life and live in it most of your life and occasionally, if enough people encourage you, maintain a streak of joy for a whopping seven or eight days. And we are reaching the limit in this congregation of how long God will put up with that because he gave the leaders of this church an absolute uh, directive from the heavens. It came through prophecy and word of scripture, and it said, dig around the roots. You have one more year. So our preaching and teaching has been pretty darn serious on this note. When you look at messages like grapes of wrath, basic simplification, nobody's perfect, and game, or rather, yeah, game of thorns, a theology of fire, these are aggressive, all-out attacks on sin. That's because nestled among us in here are people sitting next to those who are on fire while you sit in absolute misery. And we are not going to put up with it any longer than God does. It doesn't matter who you're related to. It doesn't matter whether you're in my family. We will not put up with something that God won't. And the reason is we love righteousness. We hate wickedness. So with that in mind, tonight we're going to look at how to bear some fruit. Has there been some repentance in the house of God in these last few weeks? Has there been some repentance in the house of God? I've never hated sin more. I've never been more serious about Jesus than I am right now. It's only going to grow. You preach it, Titus. You get after it, man. Amen. Titus hates sin too. And the sloppy agape gospel. Hey, are you? uh, let's turn to 2 Samuel 6 and... Let's see what I can do with whatever time we have here. Are you guys rushed tonight? No. Well, that's good to know. We're going to start in 2 Samuel 6, and we're going to be in verse 1. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called... By the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. Keep your finger right here. I want to put on the screen a a verse for you to consider that we've been going through in our foundations classes. On the screen, let's put Exodus 25, verse 22. There above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony... I will meet with you. Say, I will meet with you. And give you all my commands for the Israelites. There was one place on the planet, and he says, there, 
above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you. There is a place of obedience in your life called there. It's wherever he told you to go. For the Vincents, it's going to be Indonesia. For Ezekiel, it was by the Kibar River. For me, it was moving from Baton Rouge in Lafayette to uh, Texas. I got an upgrade. What am I going to tell you? But for everyone, there is a place that is called there. So it was a specific place, but it moved around. It moved because there were signs in the heavens and the people on the earth carried the ark following the cloud by day and the fire by night. The place called there that God will meet with you on Monday might be a different place than Wednesday, and yet God doesn't vacillate. He always has a plan in mind. He was between those cherubim, and he wanted his people to follow him. This was his footstool on the earth, and his throne extended to the heavens, and he wanted to meet with his people there, and he wanted to give them commands in an ongoing basis, regularly, not give you good ideas, not give you motivational speech, not pad your ego. He wants to meet with you and give you what? Commands, commands are not options. When God speaks to the McLeans, he means it. He means for them to do it. When God speaks to the Vincents, he means for them to do it. When he speaks to the Adarmes, these are not optional. They must be done. We have the idea that being led of the Lord is somewhat, you know, flexible. It's not. When he says it, that settles it. It's over. Every moment that you spend considering whether or not you're going to do it, or delaying until you do what he said to do, you are sinning. But the good news is, there's a place he wants to meet with you. So when he speaks to me some five years ago, on the 12th of next month, and he tells me that Wade Sutherland is going to pastor this church, I wasted no time. Within 24 hours, I picked up the phone and called and told my friend something that was insane. And yet, they sit right here in a place called there. Some 10 years before that, I didn't even pick up the phone. I drove to Matthew P. Rowe's house. Do you know why? Because at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, God spoke to me. So by 3 o'clock, I was in the car driving to Baton Rouge, knocking on their door. It was insane. But slow obedience is no obedience at all. And I'm a man that believes that when God says it, he means for you to do it. Is there anybody here that feels that way? Yes. They set the ark of God on a new cart. Anybody got a new car? Got that new car smell? Oh, man. Yeah, my car got a smell. But it's not a new car smell. Unless your new car was rolled in Havana. They set the ark of God on a new cart. New is not always good. We live in a time where everything that is sold to you is sold based on its newness. Even your detergent, that's the same formula your grandma used, is called new and improved. And what they mean by new and improved is they added the words new and improved. The same six-step sales process is sold in a new sales book every month. The same, the same, the same. There's nothing new under the sun, but this feels like a new cart to them. And they brought it to the house. 
I'm sorry, brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohiah, the Buckeye, sons of Abinadab were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ohio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. Does all your might sound like a good thing? I mean, this is not your average dead service, is it? They're worshiping. They're getting it, Abimbola. They're getting it. With songs and worshiping with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. If there were tambourines there, there had to be some Hispanics there, Gabriel. (laughs) When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Seemed like the right thing to do. I mean, after all, the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there besides the ark of God. That's an interesting problem, isn't it? How many of you have looked at this and scratched your head? Have you ever looked at it and thought, you know, that doesn't seem very fair? Yeah, that's why you're scratching your head. You're going to want to back off that answer as we go, but that's why I committed it, you to it up front. This happens because we look and we judge Uzzah's act as relatively innocent and God's act as harsh. The very fact that we can do that in our thoughts shows how wicked and sinful and twisted our hearts are. From the very beginning when man reaches out to take hold of a symbol of good and evil so that he would know for himself what is good and evil, we've always chosen wrongly. But we're going to judge God Almighty for the way that he has treated Uzzah there predominantly because you've done an awful lot worse and you haven't been struck dead. And so you don't think God is fair. We do this all of the time. It's why Pastor Wade preached the message called Nobody's Perfect. That's heretical to start with. But you'll have to listen to that message to figure out why. I want to show you five times in the Word. We'll stroll through them pretty quickly. Five times that God says how this ark is to be carried. Let's put Exodus 25, 14 through 15 on the screen. What's five the number of? Grace Grace in the Bible. Insert insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in front of the rings on this ark. They are not to be removed. How did you carry the ark? With poles. That says that plain as day in the same chapter that first describes how you build the ark. Should God have to say something more than once? And if he says something five times, is it irreverent to ignore him five times in a row? How about Exodus 37 5? 37 5. Just 5. And he inserted the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The ark was carried from poles. Two scriptures in a row. How about Exodus 40 and verse 20? He took the testimony and placed it in the ark, attached the poles to the ark, and put the atonement cover on it. Do you know why he attached the poles to the ark? It was the only way 
it was allowed to be carried. Numbers 4, verses 4 through 6. This is the work of the Kohathites in the tent of meeting, the care of the most holy things. When the camp is to move, Aaron and his sons are to go in and take down the shielding curtain and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they are to cover this with the hides of sea cows, spread a cloth of solid blue over that, and put the poles in place. This is four times now. This time we find out that you're supposed to wrap the ark in a skin of flesh while it's carried. Isn't that interesting? Did you hear that it was called the most holy things? How about 1 Chronicles 15, 15? This is the time when they demonstrate it and do it correctly. And the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders, as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. When you first read about Uzzah, you go, ah, how could God do that? They're worshiping with all of their heart and the oxen stumbled and all he's trying to do is, is fix a problem. No, he's a part of the problem. Just like you are. See, we think that we can do it the way that we want to do it and ignore God's word because our hearts exonerate us. My heart says I'm doing it right. I mean, after all, what not worshiping? That makes it a greater sin. It makes it a greater sin that we drink of the rain of heaven, but we produce thorns. It is a greater sin when a man prophesies and a man speaks the word and then walks right out and commits sin. We judge God harsh and Uzzah innocent because we don't want to be judged by a holy God. The truth is we would like the Ark of the Covenant to come into our tents. This is a beautiful, beautiful shadowing type about the infilling of the Holy Ghost. But we forget that the presence of God is the holiness of God. And you cannot have the presence of God without the holiness of God. Is it holy to have God speak to you five times and you ignore it? Is it holy to have five books of the Bible memorized, have these passages in them, and then disregard them when you handle the ark? Is that holy? How much of God's word can you disregard while judging yourself innocent? After all, you were just trying to help the oxen that stumbled. Think of the sin involved here. It was sin to put it on a cart. It was sin for men not to carry it. It was sin to... Not use poles. It was sin to touch the physical ark rather than the poles. We could keep going and going and going. But most of the room has a problem with Uzzah being struck dead. I'd like to put number 7, verse 9 on the screen. Let's add a sixth scripture that's not poles, but you'll get the idea. But Moses did not give any, of the, did not give any to the Kohathites because they were to carry on their shoulders the holy things for which they were responsible. The Kohathites had to carry on their shoulders the holy things. Did you know it's not just the ark? 
The table of his presence was also carried with poles. The altar of incense also with poles, and so on and so forth. In other words, God said, it's enough for you to be in the presence of these things. You do not get to manhandle them. You do not get to control them. You do not get to adjust them. It's enough for you to be in the presence of them. And yet the majority of church contention is because you want to manipulate how and when the holy things come into play. Well, I've always felt like it should be like this. I think praise and worship should be like that. I think I should be on the team and she shouldn't. I think those speakers are too loud. I, I think the air conditioning is wrong. Who cares what you think? You do. And you're God of your own life. That's the problem. There was a divine pattern that was revealed and it was disregarded by men who said they love the Lord. Let's examine who loves the Lord and does not love the Lord in this passage, and perhaps we could reflect on it in our own lives so that we're not reading an ancient story about ancient men, but some of you sitting in here today in this section, this section, and this section will take it to home because there is no person in here that I am not speaking to. Struck him down there and he died beside the ark of God. Numbers 4.15, by the way, if you want to make a note, literally says you cannot touch it. By the way, if you were counting, that makes seven references, seven warnings. But in any case, verse 8 of 2 Samuel 6. This is where this message starts to get a little bit real. Then David was angry. Because of the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, the place is called Perez Uzzah. How angry do you have to be to change the name of a town? How upset do you have to be to spend three months away from what you know is the presence of God? I'm going to list for you on the board something that may surprise you. This word for anger here is harah. C-H-A-R-A-H. When you take its Hebrew letters, we have a chet, which is like a fence that divides. We have a human head, a resh, being pictured. And then we have a man with its arms raised. This is the Paleo-Hebrew for chet, resh, and hay, which makes up this word. The word harah is 2734 in the Strong's. And when you're considering it, it doesn't literally say angry. It says to glow, to burn, to blaze. The idea here is that it made David fume. Have you ever seen, you can tell somebody's angry, their ears turn red, their forehead start to sweat, their fists clench, they are flat out mad look at what david is mad at then david was angry because the lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. i want you to notice something god he is not angry that Uzzah sinned he is angry that Uzzah was judged for his sin apparently david was just like you he looked at the story and he said i don't know whether god was fair I mean, Uzzah was just trying to help. Who does God think that he is? 
that he would do this. I don't know if I want God's presence in my city because he did that to Uzzah. It caused David to question God's character. Now, God's character is immovable. But David's needed some adjustment. This chet, this fence, is something that divides. Sometimes it's rendered half. Other times it's rendered outside. This resh is the first, the beginning. Or the top. The idea is preeminent. And then this is look. The hay is look, reveal, or breathe. You could get the idea that anger would divide you from the first or primary revelation in your life. That anger at a wife could cause you to forget that you love her. That anger at a child in a moment could cause you to forget they're just a child. One of the first things that I attended in this city was a medical conference. I had to do continuing education in um, medical subjects to remain a competent conversant while I was a purveyor of medical services. Yeah, it was ridiculous, but I had to do it. So I went to seminar after seminar, and I could remember very little of it because it was mostly excuses for why people are the way they are when they were diagnosed with ambiguous diseases because they had psychological problems. I was in the pain management business at the time. But one of the ones that I found most interesting was a couple neurologists talking about the cognitive deficit that happens with emotions. There are two emotions that impair your cognitive reasoning more than any other, according to those neurologists. When somebody is in the height of passion, they experience a cognitive deficit. The only cognitive deficit that is greater, the only one that makes you more impaired, is rage. And a man of a reasonable intellect, an average man or average woman with a reasonable intellect that is enraged, it drops their cognitive abilities enough to put them in the disabled category, which is why when you're fighting with someone, you sound like two retarded people. The Hebrews apparently understood this because in their Paleo-Hebrew, the pictorial language, they're telling you right up front, anger, when you burn hot with something, it will divide you, half you, throw you outside of the first beginning or primary revelation in your life. It will separate you from everything that is good and what does David's anger do to him? Let's keep reading. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out, took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumble. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And said, how can the ark of God ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. 
he is going to miss out on the holiness of God and the presence of God because he disagrees with God. Let's consider a couple psalms here for a minute. Actually, let's look at the first person who did this. How about Genesis 4, 16? The first time hurrah, hurrah shows up in the Bible. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence. I shouldn't have said 16. Put 4, 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why are you divided or outside the primary revelation of your life? Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Do you know what this tells you? Cain was already separated from God even though they were speaking. He's already premeditating sin or even though they're speaking. Right there, he's already decided that God is not fair. What comes before this in the story? His brother was looked on with favor, but he and his offering were not looked on with favor. Isn't that interesting? Do you have a great deal of resentment because others seem more blessed than you? Your life just hadn't gone the way that you wanted, and so you're just content in your actions to shipwreck everybody else's life too. Rarely have a smile for anyone. Rarely have a greeting for anyone. In fact, you make yourself a victim in every situation. No amount of encouragement has been able to pull you out. You're like a black hole that absorbs all the goodness around it and can reciprocate none of it. Those words hit home with anybody in here? Because you have something in common with Cain. And the first thing that Cain says, that God says to Cain is, why does your face look like it looks? Have you ever considered that walking around with a frown all of the time is not just oppressive to the people that are around you, it's offensive to God? I've been making this joke for years, but I haven't gotten through to a bunch of you. You could give yourself a facelift that would make you more attractive immediately just by pulling the corners of your mouth towards heaven. Nobody has ever looked at a miserable Christian and said, I want to be like that. Never. And in John 15, it was to the glory of the Father that we bear much fruit, showing ourselves to be his disciple. Nobody ever said, I want to be discipled by that person who shows no joy. And we could actually have you stand up in this room and count the disciples that come from your life and measure your joy by that. Is it, do I have your attention yet? Well, good. While we're considering this, though, let's not forget something. David was also angry here. David was also joyless here. David is also on the wrong side of God here. Let's look at Psalm 45 in verse 7. By the way, there's seven of these. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. In other words, hating what is wicked, loving what is righteous, causes something in you. Joy. The source of joy in you is when you hate what is wicked and love what is righteous. That's a source of joy. Do you know who wrote those words? Anybody want to guess? It's not David. <laughs> I'm going to get you a bunch tonight. 
Yeah, that's Korah. Did the sons of Korah hate what is wicked and love what is righteous? They stood with God even when their family literally went to hell in a neat little handbasket right in front of them. They stood with God because they loved what was righteous. They hated what was wicked. That's a psalm that we sing. It's, it's as true as John 3.16. But somehow or another, we think we're not supposed to practice the hatred of wickedness and the loving of what is righteous. How about Psalm 97 and verse 10? Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Does that sound like somebody's a victim? If you hate what is wicked and you love what is righteous, what does God do for you? He delivers you from the hand of the wicked. It's amazing how your attitude towards what is wicked and what is righteous determines how you live, walk, breathe, and bear fruit. Not bearing fruit? How do you stand with hatred of things that are wicked? Oh, I know. You hate wickedness when you see it in other people but you excuse it in yourself. You hate wickedness of a 15-year-old that is surfing porn, but you think nothing of your incurable depression. You hate wickedness when you see it in males. Those bad males. The problem with the world is males. But you have an antichrist spirit that cannot be led. How about that? We hate everybody else's sin, and we love our own. How about Psalm 101 in verse 3? This one is by David, albeit written at a different time in his life. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. The deeds of faithless men I hate. Do you know how faithless what Uzzah did is? He entrusted God to an oxen. And when the oxen stumbled, he was the next best choice in his own mind. And neither he nor the oxen were supposed to touch that ark. He did not have the poles. He did not have the shielding curtain. It was not on men's shoulders. They were not carried and preceded by Levites. Faithless. When you go your own way, it is faithless. When God can say something five times, no, six times, no, seven times, and we all think he's doing something wrong when he judges a man for ignoring seven warnings. Are we not faithless? Wow. How about Proverbs 8, verse 13? To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. What is pride and arrogance? Can you sit through a whole worship service and still be as unhappy as when you walked in? Can you absorb message after message and remain unmoved? Can you wear out more pastors than we can call and raise up and bring in this place? Pride and arrogance is when you cannot be moved from clinging to your own stubborn ways. You don't have to walk around with your nose in the air to be prideful and arrogant. 
fact, you might walk around the most mopey of all mopies in here. That is pride. That is arrogance. Well, you just don't understand, Pastor. You know what I understand? I've lived long enough to watch that those who are incurably sad stay incurably sad. Those that have an overcoming attitude cannot be brought down. I have found out that commiseration does nothing for a human being. Just take a litmus test here for a moment. If you can't maintain a friendship inside the body of Christ for six months, how can you be walking in the will of God? If you've been saved for 20, 30 years, and you do not have a list of people that you confide in and they confide in you regarding the revelation that you're accumulating and help for the disciples that you're instructing, how can you be in the will of God? Maybe you're just like David. You're standing there going, I'm not willing for all of that to come to me. I'll just watch it at Obed-Edom's house. You know, we go to the same church. When you look around, can you see somebody in here more blessed than you? If you look to your left, do you see somebody who has more of the presence of God demonstrated in their life than you? You look to the right, you see somebody with more of the presence of God in their life than you? You're going to have to come to a conclusion that you make that choice. It's not just because they're specially favored. It's not because you were not favored by God. What did God tell Cain? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But we would rather blame God than see ourselves as Uzzah. Y'all having a good time yet? Let's go ahead and take Proverbs 13, 5. The righteous hate what is false, but the wicked bring shame and disgrace. What do the righteous do? They hate what is false. Amos 5.15. Hate what is evil. Love good. Maintain justice in the corpse. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. We're supposed to hate what is evil and love what is good. How can you say you are loving what is good walking around with a frown? It's about like some of the couples in here that say that you are dating and you don't ever smile. You're not happy with each other. Could it be that you're trying to just cram a square peg in a round hole because you're terrified you'll be alone? Faithless. I'm going to tell you what, if there's one thing in your life you should never settle on, it's a bride. It's a husband. There is no more important decision than you could ever make. And if you cling to the first person who will accept you because you have no faith in God, you'll get what you deserve. We are supposed to love what is righteous. To walk around not happy would be to say to the world there's no righteousness left in it, which begs the question, why would you come here then? Don't get me wrong. I want all of you here. I want you repentant in here. But I'm going to tell the truth. After 20 years of swinging the bat at this bowl, there's some of you that I haven't been able to strike it one time. Never seen you happy for more than two or three weeks at a time. Ever. The prophecy for this church this year 
was the Lord is digging around the roots of the tree. You know what kind of tree it was? It's a fig tree. The very same tree that at the end of Jesus' ministry, he himself cursed. I don't want one person to dwell under a curse. Not one. I want you to have the blessing, so I'm going to do my job. I'm going to boldly warn this body. I'm going to live in holiness. I'm going to invite you into every area of my life so that you can see what it looks like to live in holiness. I'm not going to take the cowardly, heretical way out and say, oh, well, we're all sinners. Just aim for the lowest. The pastors in this church are going to stand up and lead. You only have so long that you can follow because God himself only tolerated Uzzah so long. This was a joyful day. They were worshiping. The very throne of God was there. And somebody got struck dead. Let us take on this next part of the text. Now King David, verse 12, was told the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom, the city of David, with rejoicing. So did Obed-Edom get blessed? What was happening to David is he's looking over there going, you know, I didn't think I wanted the holiness of God. I was scared. But when I see the blessing associated with it, I, I think maybe something's not wrong with God. Might be wrong with me. So I'm going to tell you, take a look around at the lives that are around you. If you can't find a house like Obed-Edom's house in this building, you are blind. I've never been in a collection of believers that had more of the almighty presence of God in it. In fact, believers can come in here and inside of one year outpace some who have been here for 5, 10, 15, 20 years because you're content to stand next to the blessing of God without going after it yourself. You have to deal with this, friends. We gotta, we gotta come together and figure out what you are going to do differently because we know one thing for sure those who are miserable among us, what you're doing's not working. You can only blame everybody so long and make yourself a victim so long. We were called to be so much more in Christ. David did not, in the scripture, it doesn't say he snotted everywhere. Doesn't say he cried everywhere. Doesn't say he crawled on his hands and knees to obey Edom's house. Because that's not what repentance is. And we no longer accept that as repentance in this place. I've heard enough speech. I've seen enough tears. I've lined out enough handkerchiefs. I'm done with it. You know what repentance looks like? David saw the blessing over there and he said, you know what? I'm sorry. I, I, I'm going to get it. There was no speech about it. He didn't stand up and, and monologue about it. He just went and did something different. What would it take to get you to do something different, saints? What would it take to get you to wake up and go, all my friends have passed me by. All the disciples coming in now have outpaced me. I want what they have. What would it take? Oh, I know. It's because there's a pastoral click. The victim in you just is not going to let the spirit come to the surface, is it? 
How is it that some come here and in four years they're prepared to go to the mission field and in 20 years you hadn't been prepared to go to your neighbor with the gospel? Think on it. You grew up in church, some of you. Grew up in spirit-filled churches. And your Christian walk is better described as a boat anchor than something that propels people. What are you going to do? Well, you could make some ugly Facebook posts. You could say that we criticize your Facebook posts. I'm sure somehow or another, your failure is our fault. The end of the day, though, you either are doing what the Lord said to do or you are not. And if you are, then there ought to be much fruit showing yourself to be his disciple. There ought to be much glory for the Father, not contempt for everyone around you. You can question whether or not I'm right. You can say I'm fat, bearded, rednecked, whatever it is you want to say. You can't say I'm wrong. Not about this. I'm at least being honest with you about what the Word says. It's not hard to tell whether a tree's got fruit on it. It's not hard to tell whether a Christian has joy. It's not hard. You can fake it for about three weeks. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Not only did David not try to prove his repentance with words, he just went and got the ark. I defy you to find in the word anywhere where it is said that a man must sacrifice fattened, bull, fattened calves and sacrifice bulls every six steps. It's not there. He simply wanted to go above and beyond. He realized how wrong he had been, and he wanted to show his devotion. He took Numbers 5 to heart. He said, you know what? I'm going to add more than 20% to my failure. I'm never going back. I'm doing it differently. Amen. Or he could just get mad at Obed-Edom. See how that would turn out for him. It's not that men of God don't make mistakes. David made a terrible, terrible mistake. It's that he didn't live in his mistake and blame others. His actions immediately show something different. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all of his might, while the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts, uh, with shouts and the sound of trumpets. They're praising We'll talk to you about an ephod for a minute. I was in a Bible study the other night because that's what we do. Every free minute in the Stevens and Sutherland's household, there is a Bible study. Anytime that you ever stop by, you will find Bibles open. That's what we do. If we are not sleeping, we're in the Word because we love the Word. And at that Bible study, Nolan Hewitt tuned us into something, and it's beautiful. Exodus 28, 15. Let's put that on the screen and find out what an ephod is for. Fashion a breast piece for making decisions. The work of a skilled craftsman. Make it like the ephod of gold and of blue and purple and scarlet yarn and of finely twisted linen. Listen to how the ephod is made. It's, go back one, please. It is made from gold and purple and blue and scarlet. 
It is made of divinity. It is made of something heavenly, something with majesty, and something redemptive in nature. That is what holds the ephod together. The ephod is highly symbolic of something. But let us go down a verse to verse 30 and see what it's actually for. Exodus 28, verse 30. And put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastpiece so that they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. The ephod was an item that the high priest put on to make godly decisions. Go figure that you do not have the decision-making capability within you, that what you have to do is put on Christ to be able to know what God would want to do. The high priest was symbolic of Christ. The ephod had the tribes of Israel on it, and right over the heart it had a means for making decisions that would be God's decisions. Go to 1 Samuel 23, 6. In 1 Samuel 23, 6, Now Abathar, son of Abimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. When Abathar defected from Saul's kingdom, he brought David an ephod. Go to verse 9. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abathar the priest, Bring me the ephod. David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has definitely heard that Saul has plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard, O Lord? God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. When David wanted to hear from God, you know what he did? He put on the vestments of the high priest. Now, I'm going to tell you something. He doesn't have the right to do that. He's not a high priest. But he did it because he wanted God's decision more than he cared about his own life. To David, it was holiness or die trying. He was putting on the vestments of the high priest because he wanted God's decision on the subject more than he cared about his own life. And in this case, God tells him to run. In 1 Samuel 30, verse 7, he does it again. And God tells him, stand and fight. Sometimes God is going to tell you to stand your ground. Other times he's going to tell you, you have to get out of that situation. But in every case, David put on an ephod. Why do you think we find him dancing in one on the day he brings up the ark? When he saw his friend struck dead. And he went into a time period of confusion. At some point, he had to put on the mind of Christ. At some point, he had to get into the flow of the Holy Ghost. He had to say, my own thoughts have betrayed me, and I need God. And you know what it caused him to do? Lead Israel in sacrifice. Lead, lead, lead Israel in song and take the presence of God's holiness right up into the tent of the city of David so that the whole world could see the blessing of God. Amen. What are you sacrificing for your selfishness? What has it cost you to make fleshly decisions? What has it cost you to think with your natural mind and be ruled by fear? 
it may very well have cost you your inheritance in the life to come, even though you sit in here. Ephesians 4.22 teaches us strongly as an imperative. You were taught, past tense, with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true, say true, true, true not false, true righteousness and holiness. See, it is a false righteousness, a false holiness that would look at what Uzzah did and go, I don't understand why God would do that. That's because you don't have true righteousness. You don't have true holiness. You have a righteousness of your own that has, has limited God to what you think he ought to do. This is why the pastors are preaching the way that we're preaching. Because we've been ruled by sayings like nobody's perfect, which means you have no desire to get perfect. We're trying with all of our heart to wake every person in this room because the judgment of God is coming. And do you know that while we practice church discipline, some continue in their sin. And the way they continue in their sin is they say, my sin's not as bad as the one that was just judged. My sin's different than the one that was just judged. The woman with the God-awful attitude, the one that is just pulling at the seams of her mouth towards the ground every day, says, I'm not in porn like them. You sure that you're safe? There is a way to know God's will. While we're in Ephesians, go to Ephesians 5 and verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Verse 9. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Do you know that if you were living in sin, sin of your attitude, sin of your actions, sin of your apathy... You do not see God or man correctly. You have barbs in your eyes. You have thorns in your side. You have trouble in your land. And you are in danger of God doing to you what you should have done to the sin, which is demolish it. But the moment that you repent and you start to live in the way that God called you to live, hear me, it means strap a smile on your face. It means have a song in your heart. It means an overcoming testimony of the power of Jesus Christ to set you free. When you live like that, you begin to find out what pleases the Lord. Amen. When you refuse to live like that, you are incapable of knowing how to please God. And so you become more miserable than want everyone around you to be as miserable as you, and I'm not doing it. You can't get upset enough to pull me down. I'm a short timer. How much ever time I got left, it's short time compared to eternity. And I'm telling you the truth. There is not enough negativity in the world to get me to love my Jesus any less, to get me any more happy about his sin-breaking power. Amen. I just don't understand how some can be so hard to encourage. So now I'm warning you, your time is short. You repent, 
or your time is short. It's not just me saying that. Whatever you think about me, I stand in a position that is God's voice, at least in some cases, to most of you. Do you feel warned? You should. Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, if Paul is urging you, brothers, do you think that it's urgent? I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That was one of the sweetest messages I've ever preached in my life. And you know what? Some remained unchanged. So I'm going to take a different tactic tonight. If I didn't get you with the pillow, I'm going to see if I can get you with the 15-pound sledge. If I have to call your name, then it's coming. Brace yourself. To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is David putting on the ephod. Then you will be able to test and approve of what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If you can stand here today and say, I think you're talking about me, and I want you to know I take exception to it, then you also better be able to say, I stand in the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God for my life. If you can't say that and pass the lie detector test, then how dare you take exception to what I'm saying? I'm trying to save your life. What's left of it? I can't do anything about what you've already wasted, and you can't either. But I know a God who can. And if you went after him with the same kind of tenacity that you have resisted him for most of your life, I bet he would restore it. Or you can just keep doing what you're doing and get what you've always gotten. But I'm telling you, judgment is coming. Back to 2 Samuel 6. Verse 16. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And she, when she saw the king David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Where did she despise him? Now, what was in her heart comes out of her mouth later. In fact, if you just skip down to verse 20, 20 David returned home to bless his household. What's he coming to do? Bless the household. Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. This is a Christian who professes to love the Lord with their mouth, but they hate his actions. They hate those who are blessed in his actions. In fact, they find fault with everybody in the world and maybe themselves most of all. There are seven women in the Bible that are barren. The first is Sarah, who was, of course, called Sarai first. The second is Rebecca. The third is Manoah's wife. The fourth, I'm sorry, the third is Rachel. Third is Rachel. 
The fourth is Manoah's wife. The fifth, Hannah. Hannah. The sixth, Michal. The seventh, Elizabeth. Which one did not produce a child? Sarah produced a child. She was barren, but produced a child. Rebecca produced a child. Rachel produced a child. Manoah's wife produced a child. Hannah, a child. Michal never produced a child. Elizabeth produced a child. You could get the idea that the only way that you don't bear spiritual fruit is to profess a love for the Lord with your mouth, but deny him with your actions. I got the joy, joy, joy of the Lord down in my heart. You just can't see it because it's so far down in there. Sure. Seven women in the Bible. You could look and go, well, then I may never, I may never bear fruit because one of them didn't. Or you could say six of the seven did. The number six is the number of sin in the Bible. Look, let's take this a step further. Sarai means contentious. But God changed her name to princess. Rebecca. Rebecca means a rope. Noose. Ensnare. And it carries with it the idea of captivate. Rebecca kind of means irresistible. The idea here is that once you've seen her, it's like a rope or a noose ensnaring you. You never get her out of your mind. Rachel means you or lamb. Manoah's wife, she's nameless, so I don't know what she means. Hannah means grace. Or favor. Mikhail. This is a shortened version of the word Michael. Michael and Mikhail differ by one letter in God's name. Michael means who is like God. Elizabeth means God is my oath. Take a look at this for just a minute. Let's examine who did not live up to their name and why they didn't live up to their name. Did Sarah become a princess? Yes, Abraham's wife is considered one of the greatest women in Israel's history. Did Rebecca captivate her husband? Yes, when Isaac saw her, he loved her immediately. What was Rachel's husband's occupation? His name was Jacob. What was his occupation? Shepherd. Shepherd. What is a shepherd's eye on? His lamb. Did, did Jacob love Rachel most? More than Leah. More than, you know what Leah means? Cow eyes, weak eyes. Apparently, Jacob preferred to shepherd sheep as opposed to some other beast. Manoah's wife, did she live up to her name? Yep, she's still nameless. <laughs> Hannah, 
Hannah means grace or favor. Why do you think that Peyton's uh, in-laws named Hannah, Hannah? Her name still inspires the feelings of grace, feelings of favor. What an amazing woman in the Bible, right? What an amazing woman he's married to. Michael, who is like God? Did she live up to her name? Not at all. Maybe there are no shortcuts. Maybe just dropping off one letter. Maybe just having a bad attitude towards one thing is enough to keep you from living up to your namesake. How about Elizabeth? God is my oath. Did Elizabeth finish her task? Six of seven women lived up to their name. Only one didn't, and she despised the way that David loved the Lord. And when he was loving the Lord, what was he actually doing? Repenting. And Michael didn't till the day of her death. So she died a barren old woman. Does that sound appealing to anyone? Anybody in here say, I hope I never bear any kind of fruit, physically, spiritually, any other way. I want to go down in history as the one that hated the move of God while I stood in the household that was being blessed by it. There are so many ways you could do this. If these are thousand-year periods, this period is Adam. Adam was a prince over the universe. This period... <clears throat> is Abraham. Abraham becomes the friend of God. He's captivating to him. The third period is the time period where David comes along. He is the one that most teaches us about the shepherd that is the 23rd Psalm. This time period, this nameless time period, is the time period Jesus Christ was crucified in and we didn't know what his name would be. This time period is the time period of the most grace and favor in the church's entire history. This time period is the rise of the Antichrist. And this time period is when God finishes his oath if you do it by thousand years. If you do it by chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 1, this is where the prince of creation is. In Genesis 2, it's where he gets his wife. In Genesis 3, we find the need for a lamb. In Genesis 4, Abel's descendants become nameless. In Genesis 5, the favor of God on Seth causes his descendants to be named. In Genesis 6, God's heart is grieved and there is a flood. In Genesis 7, he makes an oath and keeps it, putting Noah in the ark. You can do this all day long, but my favorite, what I wrote in my new Bible... Defining these names, you could get the idea. Follow me through this chart here. A contentious one becomes a princess that ensnares the lamb. We don't know his name, but his grace and favor makes us like God. God is my oath. God could use the story of barren women to teach us how to repent. He could teach us about his name changing. He could teach us that there is only one way that you don't fulfill his purpose in your life, and that is by being like Michal, someone who despises repentance when she sees it, someone who will never please or bear fruit for God. I skipped a few verses here, and I want to come back to them as we work towards a closing point. Let's pick up in 2 Samuel 7, 17. 
They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing, say after. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of, a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites. Who was left out? Both men and women. There's one person in all of Israel that's not being blessed on this day. One person in all of Israel that is unhappy on this day. One person in all of Israel that is incurably sinful on this day. And she's supposed to be the bride of the king. You feel me yet? You're supposed to be the bride of the king. The whole world is being blessed by him. Revival is stretching out everywhere. How dare us mope around? How dare you find more joy in Netflix, more joy in the food that you eat, more joy in anything other than his presence. The whole world is being blessed by his righteousness. And we're not happy. Do people have to ask you what's wrong regularly or have they just quit talking to you altogether? The king of Israel sacrificed and then gave gifts. The sacrifice preceded the gifts he gave, just like Jesus. But the reason that he sacrificed and gave the gifts was to teach you to sacrifice. You receive the gifts to empower you to sacrifice. You pray in the spirit to put on the ephod so that you can sacrifice your feelings and move forward. Six of seven women, they move past their barrenness, their inability, and they fulfilled their namesake. Only one failed because she couldn't sacrifice her pride, her arrogance, her bad attitude. David started with the exact same problem. He had pride. He had arrogance. He judged the act of Uzzah is wrong. Why would God do that? But he repented. Amen. He repented. So in the seventh chapter, David gets a covenant and it lasts forever. It's called the Davidic Covenant. In the 8th chapter, the one who would not take the presence of God into his life, look at verse 1 of chapter 8. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. Do you recognize the word subdued? He put the kibosh on them. He's not over sullen in the palace, wondering why everybody else is blessed. He's out kicking the devil's butt. Look, say what you want to about our pastors. Maybe we need sensitivity training. Maybe we need to learn to speak your love language. You know what I know how to do? I know how to put my foot on the devil's head. Do you? I hadn't seen a single person grow by criticizing me. Let me just agree with you. I suck. Everything's wrong with me. Now that we got that out of the way, can we talk about you? How long can you drink the rain and not produce the crop? There is no reading of the parable of the sower that doesn't say at least 30, 60, and 100 fold. How long can you drink the rain and you produce thorns before you're in danger of being cursed? Look at verse 14 of chapter 8. 
He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victories wherever he went. I'm here to tell you, you can have victory over your bad attitude. You can kick depression the hell out of your life. Amen. You know how I know that? I've seen people throw away their Prozac. I've seen people put away their antidepressants. I've seen people overcome. You can have victory in every area of your life. If you need a child, if that's the biggest fight in your life, let's start with a smile. You surely can't give birth to a child if you can't birth a smile. You need a husband. How about your faith? You're supposed to be the bride of Christ already. Be faithful to the husband you have before you ask for another. You need a bride. What kind of bride? You want a whore for a bride? What does your spiritual life say you deserve? Are you the kind of man that the king should give his daughter to? Everybody wants. The sluggard wants. The wicked person craves, but they get nothing. It's the desires of the righteous that are satisfied. Do you know why? God's not going to entrust you with a beautiful, precious bride when you live like a whoremonger in your private life. I'm just going to go out on a limb and tell you the truth. Single people, you ought to live together. You ought to take doors off of every room. You ought to not have access to the Internet, period, male and female. You ought to be required to strap a smile on your face when you meet other people. You want to be miserable in your own time, then be miserable in your own time. Around everybody else, you ought to at least fake it until something starts to work. Y'all, the kingdom... The kingdom, when you think of the fruit in the kingdom, love, peace, joy, patience, happiness. I mean, which one describes you? Where is the fruit of the Spirit in the mopey, depressed person? Pastor, I'm already so low, and you're kicking me while I'm down. We've been putting up with you. For year after year after year, you can't be raised up lest there a resurrection happen in you. It's not me kicking you down. You're doing a great job of seating so much sin on your shoulders you can't stand up. All you got to do is repent. You'll find a new life. You'll find new power. There's no sin that he won't break, but you don't even see what you do with sin. You see, all that we're doing is sin against you. I'm just going to tell you the truth. I had it. I've had it. And not only have I had it, you wore me out first, you wore Matthew out second, and Pastor Wade's now had it too. So even the nicest among us are tired of putting up with incurable chronic unhappiness. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. If you have to find a new set of friends every six weeks, you might consider you are the problem. The ninth chapter is where we end tonight. That'll make some of you happy, others of you sad. And that says everything it needs to say about you. In the ninth chapter, we find that David's repentance has not only produced the infilling of the spirit in the temple, the tabernacle, a tabernacle that is full of God's presence. David's repentance has not only blessed every man, woman, and child in Israel except 
one incurable old hag. But now he's looking for the lame and the crippled. Now he is looking for anyone to show kindness to. 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? David had made a covenant with Jonathan many years earlier. And David keeps his covenant because he's a type of the Messiah. Messiah will keep his covenant, will you? Those of you who are in covenant with him, do you honor the covenant the way that you expect him to? What will you do if he doesn't keep the covenant any more than you have? Verse 2. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant? He replied. The king asked, Is there, there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? David is not going to show David's kindness. David is going to show God's kindness. David has learned at this point that his emotions betray him. He has learned that when he gets angry, he's not angry at the right thing. And when he shows kindness, he's not showing kindness to the right thing. So now he wants to show God's kindness. I am telling you, your emotions betray you. God is the one who tells you how to feel. And I don't believe for a minute he has said spent two decades moping. God wants to show kindness. We make him show wrath. But what he wants to show is kindness. Can I tell you, we want to preach about grace. We want to preach about the kindness of the Lord. The state of our congregation and the congregations around us make us Preach on the judgment of God. Because we have a duty to prepare you for what is coming and has now come. And we live in a godless generation that has raised up clowns and pansy prophets as their teachers. Saddest moments in my life is to watch people pay to go on a tour with some of these idiots when there is so much more beautiful revelation, sincere holiness, and godly work on your behalf in this room, and you'll pay to go on a tour. David was looking for someone to show kindness. Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. When you read 2 Samuel 4, 4, and we're not going to, we find out that this young man is only five years old. When he was five years old, he finds out that his father and his grandfather die. The woman who is carrying him, Josepha says, was over her shoulder. She was running. She feared because now the king and the king's son is dead. I got to get out of the house. These are the heirs. In her haste to get out of the house, she dropped the boy. He was crippled in both feet for his life, and now enough time has passed that he's a man. My first inclination is just like Uzzah. I said, man, that's not fair to that boy. He didn't do anything wrong, and he was crippled. You're wrong. 
He was born to diseased stock of a God-hating family. And he had never done anything in his life up to this point to be any different than his God-hating family. He was born under the wrath of God and would have to be saved out of it. God was looking to show kindness, but the young man stood in wrath from birth. You know who else stands in wrath from birth? You do. That's why you must be born again. You're not a pretty good person. You never were. When you get born again, you become something entirely different than what you were. There's no such thing as a good person. That's why when they came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? He challenged it and said, why do you call me good? We have a theology that is just wrong. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Makir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Lodabar, in every Bible dictionary I looked up, means no pasture. He's out in a place where there's nothing to eat, but I'm learning Hebrew, and I want to grant you I make all kind of mistakes. But I, the first two words you learn are kin and lo. Kin means yes, lo means no. Debar. Debar means word. Now, perhaps this is a variant, and it means something different. Obviously, it does, or the Bible dictionaries wouldn't say that. But when you live in a place where there is no word, you got no pasture. Somebody comes to you and says, why are you acting the way you are? Have you read the word this week, and you cop an attitude? We're talking about a week, seven days. I understand you cop an attitude if it had been three and a half minutes since you read the word. Seven days. You want to know what's wrong? You don't love the Lord enough to even talk to him and read his word. You're too busy living in your own muddled depression. Guys, if you can go seven days without reading the word, I question whether or not you are a Christian. How dare you? How dare you? This is the holy word of God. Men died to get you this. You can go seven days without reading it and think you are right with God? Okay. You live in Lodabar. You're more crippled than you think that you are. So King David had brought him from Lodabar, from the house of Mekur, son of Amiel, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. This is amazing, Mephibosheth. When you look his name up in most Bible dictionaries, it says an utterance of contempt. Yeah, that's what they say about us too. But McClintock and Strong says his name means, I am the exterminator of shame. Isn't it a... A vast difference between one who utters contemptible things and one who exterminates shame. Perhaps it's in the eye of the beholder. To those who want to live in their shame, maybe he was contemptible. But to those who wanted to be freed from it, maybe he was the exterminator of shame. I love Mephibosheth, and I love him because he rightly understood himself. Look at this. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him. 
For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Have you been a Christian so long you actually think God owes you something? Have you become angry? Have you let something simmer and burn in you and it has separated you from the most primary first revelation in your life? That you are dead. And the only life you have, you have in him. And you owe him every single breath and should rejoice that you get one more. Has something separated you from that? As somebody who was lost until they were 18, when I came into the church, I could not believe the state of church kids. I couldn't believe it. Spoiled, entitled, brats. I felt so lucky to be in the house of God. I knew I did not belong here. And yet I was counted as one of the sons of God. I was so ingratiated, I have spent my entire life serving him. Do you have more in common with David's repentance or Michael's evaluation, Mikhail's evaluation? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, And said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring him the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth's grandson of your master will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth, the exterminator of shame, ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. We're going to take this second. Mephibosheth sitting at the table. He is now positionally righteous. He's a son. At the table. Does he belong there? No. But because the king has had favor on him and he trusted the Lord enough to take the seat, he is declared righteous. He's seated at the king's table. What do you think would happen to him if he threw the king and the, the, the food in the king's face? What do you think would happen to him if he began to denounce the king's servants at the table? What do you think would happen to him if he could never smile at that table? What do you think would happen to him if he actually showed disdain for the kindness shown to him? How positionally righteous do you think you really are? It should be enough for you that he sat you at the table. You should never waste one more hour mully-grubbing it, full of sin and demonic fears and thoughts. Never. You do not have that right. And if you are commiserating with people because y'all think you have that right, you are about to be weeded out of this congregation. 
if not the kingdom. Because we are going to produce fruit. Because we know we didn't belong at the table and we're so happy to be here. We are not going to get into food fights. We are not going to get into who's seated where and argue about whether we're closer to the foot or the head or why did he choose. I'm so happy to be at the king's table. You find me depressed one day and you have the right to slap me right in the face. My will not refuse it. It'll be a kindness. Somebody should jar me from my wicked sinfulness. You do not have the right to be a killjoy. You do not. You have the right to be obedient to the Spirit Amen. and produce fruit. Amen. Fruit. Fruit. Look at your life tonight, very honestly. Put Ephesians 2, 6 on the screen. It's our last scripture. And you look at your life and tell me whether your life says this. And God raised you. He raised you up with Christ and seated you with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Does your life tell the world that you are seated with Christ Jesus or would they have the impression that you were on a public bus you didn't want to be on? Listen, there's nowhere to hide in this. The people around you already know. The question is, do you know? The people around you are already aware of whether or not your life shows this. The question is, are you aware that your life does or does not show this? See, there's nobody to fool except you. You are the fool being fooled by you. Everybody else can already see this. How's that for sobering? You're either shining the light of Christ or you have hidden it under a bushel of selfish sin. It's one or the other. And tonight, there is a winnowing fork in his hand. I would tell you that there are angels in this room watching to see what you do. Stand to your feet.